And uh, th- this entire series, this entire series, I've just felt the pool of the Holy Ghost. It's different than other series because I feel like God is talking to us in a unique position where we stand in our culture and in our world. We're in a unique place. And, and we're in such a similar position to Malachi's generation, such a similar place. These messages have just pulled at me. And I feel God throughout this whole thing has been pulling our eyes upward, pulling our eyes away from the world, pulling our eyes away from passionless, empty religion, pulling our eyes away from all the relationships that might carry us away from God and and bringing us back to Him. And so I'm going to do my best in the next 30 minutes or so to wrap up this series. But somebody say, I need a fresh focus on Jesus. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. I'm going to read just a few passages in the English Standard Version and Malachi 2.17, he says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied him? And he says, By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, by asking, Where is the God of justice? Brother David's going to pass out our, our series guide if you'd like to follow along. And chapter 3 starts with a message to these people whose words have wearied God. He says, Behold. Somebody say, look. That's what behold means. He says, look, behold. In the middle of all this, behold. He said, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So God says to these people, look, two times in the same scripture, behold. Look, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Look, because I'm sending my messenger, and look, because I'm on my way. And so I want to talk to you for the next few moments on having a fresh focus on Jesus. I want to ask, has anybody ever gotten distracted? Anybody have that personality? I have that personality, and I believe that I inherited it from my mother's father. We called him granddad. His name was Ewell Stewart. And I can see why he decided to go by granddad. Um, when we found out his name was Ewell, we thought he was kidding. And, uh, but it, we called him granddad as a kid. And we would be in the middle of a conversation about church or about family or, or telling old stories. And, and he would always come up with something out of left field that nobody was thinking about. Nobody said nothing and about that. And all of a sudden he would come out of left field with some off-topic comment. I remember distinctly one time we were sitting in the living room. We were chatting. My mom loved to sit in the living room and talk. And so we would just sit in there and drink coffee and talk half the day. And granddad was sitting over in his usual spot. Mom and I were talking and we were bantering back and forth. And out of the blue, granddad says, you know, insurance rates in Omaha sure are getting high. I was about 16 or 17. And I said, granddad, have you ever been to Omaha? Well, no. I said, has anyone here ever been to Omaha? No. He had been reading something and just in the middle of the conversation, he left. He departed the conversation. I do this. If I've done this to you, I apologize. It's genetic. You can blame granddad. But his mind departed and he went elsewhere. He got distracted and lost focus. And and Jaira, happy birthday to Jaira. She's in the youth, but she turned 14 years old and about... An hour from now, she was born 14 years ago. And, uh, but she is just like 
my granddad, as she will come out of the, because she's been having a conversation in her head and comes out with the last sentence, and we don't know where she's been. We're just excited to find out what the journey was. I always ask her, how did you get there from here? <laughs> distracted. I, I've gotten distracted. Anybody here gotten distracted? So I'm going to pick the low-hanging fruit tonight, as we all carry a distraction with us all the time, don't we? You know, our mobile device, some of us are so attached to it that it's now Father, Son, and Holy Phone. <laughs> the average person will pick up their phone every 10 minutes. 10 minutes without, if, in fact, some of you, you left it in your car and it's making you nervous. You've been wanting to go back and get it ever since. So you left it at the house. Anybody ever done that? Turned around and drove twice as long because I can't do without my phone. Every, the average person spends over two hours a day on social media. That's not including news, emails, texts, games, Netflix, binge. In fact, uh, my kids, like, you, you can't even have a conversation with them because they're doing something on the phone all the time. And, and we, it, we easily get distracted. My wife and I haven't had a full conversation in 14 years. I'll let you do the math of why. Because your kids can be a distraction in the middle of a conversation. I, I don't know how many times you said, we're trying to have a conversation. Just let us have one. <laughs> but distraction, the dictionary defines distraction as a pulling apart or a separating a drawing of the mind in a different direction. And do you, I just want you to realize in the beginning tonight that your spiritual enemy and every force of hell wants nothing more than to distract you from living for the things that matter the most. He wants to pull apart. He wants to divide your mind. He wants to discourage your soul. He wants to disengage your faith. He wants to distract you from the things that really matter. And, and, and you, can, you, you can know this because how many of you ever gone to pray? And then all of a sudden, you, you're a forgetful person, but all of a sudden, the spirit of remembrance comes upon you. And you start remembering all the stuff you forgot to do and that you need to do. And, and you, your mind, kind of like old granddad, just goes off on a different trail. And God's saying, where did you come up with that? Where did that come from? Our enemy wants to pull us apart from focusing on Jesus. He wants to pull our eyes away from Jesus. He wants to put stuff in our life and in our path that will distract us from living for the things that matter the most. In fact, I'll say this. The devil doesn't need to destroy you if he can distract you. He doesn't even need to destroy you. All he really has to do is to distract you because if he can get you looking in the wrong direction and paying attention to the wrong things and living for material things and living for other reasons and purposes, then he doesn't really have to worry about you as a Christian. If he can distract you, eventually he'll neutralize you or worse, you'll end up destroying yourself because a distracted Christian presents no danger to the enemy. Let me tell you something. Hell is not afraid of somebody who can't focus long enough to pray. Hell is not afraid of Christians that don't have time to make it to the house of God. Hell is not afraid of people who are so distracted and pulled apart and separated from their purpose. Distracted that, that they can't do what God called them to do. You see, if he can distract you, eventually you'll neutralize you or you'll destroy yourself because... Distracted Christians are no danger to the enemy, 
and they have diminished value in the kingdom. Is The devil isn't scared of you, and God can't use you because you're too distracted. I've been there. I try to stay out of there, but I keep going back because our flesh carries us back, doesn't it? We get distracted. We live for God hard for a little while, and then life and circumstances come along, and, and they dissuade us from doing what we set out to do. Luke 10 shares the story of Martha and Mary. And, and uh, Martha uh, was hosting in her home this dinner for Jesus coming through town. And, and uh, we know the story, most of us. We come to church on Wednesdays. Probably most of you have read the Bible or know it well enough to know the story I'm referring to. But Martha and Mary are both in the house when Jesus comes. But Martha's mind was on something other than Jesus. She was busy doing what my wife does when guests come over. She's making sure everything is right because the guests are here. And Martha was playing good hostess. She was worried about the atmosphere and focused on, is there enough ice? Every time we have people come over to our house, we run out of ice. Every time. And my wife's like, go run and get ice. I'm like, well, the people are here. Martha's worried about ice. Is there fingerprints on the, uh, the, the, the cups? Is, it, is everything just right for Jesus? She's... Uh, encumbered about with many things, trying to make sure everybody is taken care of. She's focused on the task at hand and has lost sight of who it is that's in the house. And meanwhile, Mary is not focused on any of the things that Martha is. Mary is at the feet of Jesus, listening to what he's saying, focused in on him. And Martha, in her flesh, just gets ticked off about it. The Bible says Jesus... And his disciples, they came to a certain village. Martha welcomed him uh, into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. And she came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. But the Lord said to her, my dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. Distracted. Worried, upset, and there's only one thing worth being concerned about, and Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. Jesus answered, Mary has chosen the better thing, because Martha feels justified and mistreated because she's distracted, and she's missing out on the important moment that's happening within the walls of her own home. And Jesus says, she's, Mary is focused on the right thing while you're distracted, anxious, encumbered, worried, upset. Does anybody ever wonder why you're always upset and why you're worried and why you're distracted? Could it be it's because your focus is on the wrong stuff and in the wrong place? It's amazing how two people can occupy the same space, be at the same event, experience the same thing, and one's mind be in a completely different mode than another's. Maybe you You've experienced that when everybody else in the church is getting a blessing and, and you're just, you know, thinking about something else. Your mind checked out long before your body did. Maybe you've been there where you're in a prayer meeting and everybody else is touching heaven and you feel like you, you must be lost because you're just carnal. I'll tell you, I've been there a time or two. We've all been distracted temporarily. But the real danger to our faith comes when the distraction is prolonged and suddenly we're looking 
and living in a direction that leads away from God. Suddenly other interests and voices loom larger and louder in our life. And a distracted Christian will begin to look to the things of the world for meaning and purpose. A distracted Christian will start to think like the world thinks. And eventually a distracted Christian will sound like the world sounds. Malachi's generation was a distracted generation because somewhere along the way they had lost their focus. We talked in week one about how they lost faith because they lost perspective in their problems. Week two, we talked about how they lost passion in their pursuit of God. And then last week, how they lost righteousness and faith in their relationship. And these were all symptoms of the underlying problem that their focus wasn't in the right place. They were distracted. They were doing religious things, but, but they had divided attention. They were separated from their purpose and their passion. And, and the work of the enemy had, had, had done them in. And at the end of Malachi chapter 2, he begins to diagnose the problem. He says, and I'm going to read from the, the message a little bit tonight. Don't shoot me, but it just gets down in the plain English where I want us to be for a minute. He says, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Two things are wearing the Lord out in their conversation. Two things that he brings to their attention. That is wearing him out. God has been listening in on their conversation. Now look, that's enough to scare you right there. I didn't come to scare anybody tonight, but like, Jesus is listening. Be careful, little mouth, what you say. God's got his eyes. You know, there was a scariest song when I was a kid. There's an all-seeing eye watching you. Sunday school was Halloween at our church because they said, you better not because Jesus can see you and hear you. And God is listening in to their conversations. He's listening in and, and, and what they were, uh, to what they were talking about. And, and there are two things in their conversations that are wearying to God. They say that everyone who does evil is good in the sight of God. And, and they were saying, where is the God of justice? Listen to it in the message. He says, you make God weary and tired with all your talk. How do we tire him out, you ask? He says, by saying, God loves sinners and sin alike. And also by saying, judgment, God's too nice to judge. Two symptoms of distracted faith are when you lose conviction and when you lose judgment. You start denying conviction and denying judgment. I can't think of a better description of the Christianity that is so popular in our world today. Because pop culture seeps in over the edges and pretty soon you have Christians saying that it doesn't matter how you live because God loves sinners and sin alike. That, that they call those who do evil good and say that they are right with God and that everything's all right with God. Now, I didn't come to throw rocks at any certain group, but that sounds a whole lot like the doctrine of eternal security to me. That you can do whatever you want and live however you please. And, and, and God will still love you because of the prayer that you prayed one time. And, and that, that God will still embrace you and call you righteous even though you're not doing righteous things. Let me clarify. I believe in the grace of God. 
And I don't believe that every time we slip up, God casts us out of the kingdom. But understand this, honey. God has called us to be a righteous and holy people. God has called us out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. And he says, I've got an issue with you guys. And you're wearing me out with your conversations because you're justifying sin and denying judgment. God's people were doubting God's faithfulness to his plan and to his word. Doubting that God was seeing what was happening in their world. In their conversations, they're questioning, is Messiah ever really going to come? Will justice ever really prevail? Or will sins ever really be punished? Their view of God was clouded by culture, stained by self-justification, and twisted by their troubling conditions. And so here they conclude that people who had done unimaginably evil things were right in the sight of God because sin didn't matter anymore. And judgment was no longer impending before them. It was the natural conclusion of being distracted and drawn away from their covenant with God. And they start looking in the wrong direction and they forgot about the promise of a coming Messiah. A promise that Jesus would step onto the scenes of humanity. That Messiah would come. And that when he would come, he would establish the kingdom of God. The government would be upon his shoulder. And of his increase in government, there would be no end. They forgot about all the prophecies. And they forgot the hour in which they were living in. It was a natural conclusion of being distracted. In fact, I was having a conversation with a friend the other day, and the topic of atheism came up. And as we were talking about it, we, the point came up that there are, there are only two natural conclusions to atheism. One is hedonism, which is to live for all the pleasure. If there's no morality, you can live however you want. And I'm not saying that every atheist does, but the ones who don't are probably a little bit scared to do that. But that is the natural conclusion. If there's no God, I am a law unto myself and I can do whatever I please. And there is no moral obligation upon me. And the other extreme that you can go to is that there is no hope. And so suicide is, I believe, a, a spirit that is attached to atheism. When you diminish God in your world, you diminish hope in your world. When you diminish God in your world, you diminish a, a thought towards the future and towards the end because you're just living in the moment now. There is no judgment before you. And so functionally, Malachi's generation became distracted and began living like atheists. No, nothing is a sin anymore and there's no judgment anymore. And, and, and they, they were distracted from their future and caught up in the present. I know I'm plowing a little bit deep. And I knew I would be when I, when I came to bring this message. But I believe it's so relevant to where we live today. So relevant to what is pulling at the hearts of our kids. So relevant that it's what's pulling at the heart of and not just our kids, our young adults. It's what the world is proclaiming right now. The same things that God was weary of in Malachi's generation are prominent in ours. And, and listen to Malachi's message to the distracted believer. Malachi 3, 1, he says, behold, which means look. He says, look, I send my messenger. He said, you're looking at all this other stuff, but I'm sending my messenger. And he will prepare the way before me. Now, that's not talking about Jesus. Anybody know who that's talking about? It's talking about the forerunner of Christ, John the Baptist. He says, I want you to start looking. 
Because Malachi's generation didn't realize that they were standing on the edge of the Old Testament. And God was about to jump off into the New Testament when Jesus would come in Matthew chapter 1, right? There's a 400-year space. But they are the last generation that is hearing the voice of God before the return or the coming of the Messiah. They're the last ones. They're standing on that cliff and they don't even know where they stand in their generation. They're distracted from their future, caught up in the present. And Malachi's message is, look, the messenger is coming and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord who you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, look, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. God speaks through Malachi to remind his people that he had some future promises that he was bringing to pass. Some prophetic fulfillments that were to come in just a few short generations. See, they they had lost sight of their future. They had stopped focusing on looking for the coming of the Messiah. As a nation, they were no longer looking for that to happen. They were looking at the world around them. They were looking at how evil prospered. They were looking at the... Uh, the, the conditions that they were living through, they were caught up in the cultural norms. Look, if you hear anything coming through this, is don't let culture dictate to you what you believe. Don't let culture tell you what you believe because that, that's what they did is they just blended in with the culture and fell in, in lockstep with everything the culture was saying and they had their brand of religion and their brand of sacrifice, but it was powerless. And, and so they're, they're doing all the religious and godly things, but they have forgotten about the prophetic fulfillments. They've forgotten about their place in the purpose, that they were not just a result of the past generations in the church, but that they were a link to the future. And God was trying to prepare the nation, the people of God, for the coming of the Savior. And so he says, here's what you need to do, distracted generation, is you need to refocus on the coming of the Savior and the coming of the messenger. God's message was focus on the future. Look, when we get distracted from our future, we lose faith in the present. When we get distracted for why God put us here, He didn't put us here just for this moment in time, but He's got a purpose for us. He's got a plan for His church. He didn't put us here just to enjoy ourselves and have a good time. That's not why we're here. We're here because we are a link to somebody else that needs Jesus. We've got a future. We've got a hope. God reminded them of the promised sign of His coming. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, which is John, and he'll prepare the way before me. John came preaching repentance. He came preaching, Make straight the paths. The Messiah is coming. And Malachi points to the prophetic mile marker of John the Baptist, the forerunner of the coming Christ, and that soon after that, the Lord will come to His temple. Soon after John comes, then the Lord will come. And so there are two things we must be focused on if we're going to really focus on Jesus. Is number one, we need to recognize the hour that we're living in. That was Malachi's generation's problem. And, and I'm, I, I'm about to take a turn some of you did not see coming. And I love it. Because I didn't. When I started to study this, I was like, I want to talk about the attributes of Jesus. And I want to talk about, I want to talk about how good he is and how we need to look to him. Because you've heard a lot of messages about looking to Jesus, haven't you? Malachi says, first... The Lord said, look and watch for the messenger. Watch for John the Baptist because when he comes, the Lord will soon come to his temple. 
He was asking them to recognize the hour that they're living in, to be watchful. In Matthew 24, when Jesus begins to unfold the events of the end time, they they say, how will we know when those times have come? He begins to unfold that there will be wars and rumors of wars, and and they'll say peace and safety, and and then sudden destruction cometh. And he, he begins to unfold all of these signs of the times, and he says, when you see these things, look up. Look up, because your redemption draweth. Now, when you see these things unfolding, when you start recognizing the hour that you're living in, look up because your redemption draweth nigh. Does anybody know what that means? It means that look up in those hours when, when all of these uh, world events begin to come to a confluence and begin to conspire. He said, look up because Jesus is coming again. And so the message to our generation is really the same as it was to Malachi's generation. Malachi's generation was distracted and they lost focus and they were caught up in the culture and and they lost their sense of identity and they lost all this stuff. And Malachi comes along and says, start looking for the signs. Because when the sign comes, the Savior comes. And so you need to just acclimate yourself to the hour that you're now living in, Christian. You don't need to be distracted and get too caught up in the world. Because no man that warreth and no man that fights a good fight entangles himself with the affairs of this life. He's saying recognize the hour that you're living in. You've got to open your eyes and realize you're not here to have a good job. You're not here to drive a nice car. You're here because redemption is on its way. And Jesus will soon return. Oh my goodness, I did not plan to throw down and preach. But I feel the Holy Ghost in what I'm saying. is We can't can't ever lose focus of the hour that we're living in. Jesus said, work while it is day. Because night is coming when no man can work. And so you've got to recognize the hour that you're living in. You've got to get your eyes off of what the world is telling you and what people are saying and what conditions feel like. And get your eyes on the signs. Because understand they mean that Jesus is soon returning. My, my, my. We've got to recognize. We've got to recognize the hour that we're living in. We got to recognize. Somebody say we need to recognize it. We need to understand that God put us in this generation for a reason and a purpose. And there should be no other generation that outprays us, that outbelieves us. There should be no generation. I'm preaching to the young people right now because there are some elders. We lost Sister Diane. She started telling me all the times that God healed her. Brother Oglethorpe used mightily in the gifts of the Spirit, both taken from this church in the last week. The mighty people of faith. And listen, we can't just get so distracted in our families and in our careers and in what we're doing that we don't recognize why we're here now. Why we came after them is because God has stuff for us to do like they did. And so we, we've got to get acclimated to the hour that we're in. We can't be distracted with 401K. Now get you a 401K. I'm trying to get me one. I heard they're nice. Get you one. Get you a car. Buy you a house, live somewhere, but never forget what hour you are living in. And that when you say no to God, what you're really saying is it's not that important that I capitalize on the hour that I'm living in right now. My goodness. I'm going to move on because I'm going to say too much. And Pastor going to have to repair it all. God told Malachi's generation that their slipping convictions and their fading faith in the judgment of God could be remedied by understanding the hour they were living in. 
And look, when we live with an awareness of the return of the Lord, it changes our priorities. It changes my parenting. It changes how I lead my children, how I treat my wife, how I serve my church, how I live for God. When I get an awareness of the hour that I'm living in, it changes everything in my life. It shifts my priorities. In Second Peter, the apostle held a constant focus on the future hope and the coming judgment. And he wrote, we, we did a, a series on it called Different, about how we are strangers and foreigners just passing through, just here for a temporary time. And Peter, I, I, I went through this in my Bible reading a few weeks ago, and it just got a hold of me, and it's been rattling around inside in Second Peter 3.11. Peter begins after describing how the earth will one day be dissolved and the works that are done upon it will be judged and exposed. Peter then has the question that the future requires us to ask. It's simple, but it will change everything. He says this in Second Peter 3.11, Since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, because we are rapidly approaching an end of all things, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Peter was saying, now he was 2,000 years back, but Peter was saying, we know the hour we live in. And if you know that, how should you live? How sh- what, you, what should you be spending your time and your money on? Malachi's generation were passionless Christians, giving puny offerings, not tithing, robbing God, doing all this different stuff. In fact, we won't even get into Malachi. I know y'all are so shocked. We're not even going to get into the tithing issue. I guess we could keep going with the whole book. But that's how he says you return, as you put God first in your finances, and it'll fall in place in every other area of your life. But in light of the approaching end of the age, how should we live here and now? If the answer doesn't look how, like how I'm living, it's time for me to change. If my prayer isn't powerful enough to help somebody and to touch heaven, and so how, how do we do it? First, we recognize the hour that we're living in. And second, we look to the author and the finisher of our faith. Israel was living, thinking, and reasoning like the world because they had lost sight of the one that was coming. God says, look, focus on your future. I will send my messenger. He said, then I will come. He promised that when he came, he would be like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. Message Bible says it this way. He'll be like a white hot fire from a smelter's furnace. He'll be like the strongest lye soap at the laundry. He'll take his place as refiner of silver, as cleanser of dirty clothes. He'll scrub the Levite priests clean, refine them like gold and silver until they're fit for God, fit to present offerings of righteousness. Then, he says, and only then will Judah and Jerusalem be fit and pleasing to God as they used to be in the years Long ago. What he's saying is, is that when he comes, he says, I'm not just going to come to judge. I will institute judgment. But he says, I'm also coming to cleanse. I'm coming to save. In fact, he says, if you return to me, I will return to you, saith the Lord. He says, when Messiah comes, when the author and finisher of their faith comes, it may look like their faith is finished. But when he comes and when he enters the scene of humanity, he's going to set everything right and and he's going to put it all back together and all of the questions of judgment and mercy that israel had could be answered 
by looking to Jesus. I know I've got like a minute left. But I'm going to try to explain it to you as quickly as I can. It was at the cross where judgment and mercy met. Remember what they asked? They said, they said that they called evil those who did evil good, right? That's an issue of mercy. God is so merciful that he'll let anybody do anything. And on the other side, they said, where is justice? That there is no judgment. Do whatever you want, right? But judgment or mercy, in the book of Psalms, it prophesied, it said, judgment and mercy have met and they have kissed. They have come together. Where did judgment and mercy come together? I'll tell you where. It was in the cross of Jesus Christ. When Jesus was hung upon the throne, he took upon himself the wrath of God for your sins and for mine. He took upon himself the judgment for your sins and mine. For the wages of sin is death, right? And we deserve to die, but he ascended the throne. And, and so judgment was there upon the cross. But so was mercy, because it wasn't me and you hanging there. It wasn't you and I that were placed there. So judgment and mercy, all these questions of judgment and mercy that they had about God and what God allows and what God wants, it is met together. And their answer could be found by getting their eyes off the world and looking to the coming. Messiah looking to Jesus all the answers they're found they're looking for can be found by looking to Jesus and Hebrews 11 faith's hall of fame you know it goes through all the people in the Old Testament who had faith and then it says it ends by telling us that people of faith lived and died looking for a promise that they never saw come they lived and died looking forward not backwards and Hebrews 12 tells us that since they died looking forward, we should live looking forward. Listen to it. In Hebrews eleven thirty nine. These, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. He's saying that we the church are the fulfillment of what they were looking for. He says, therefore... Since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, that means martyrs. Witnesses means people who have died looking for the promise, looking for the coming Savior, looking for the institution of church. Since we are the completion of their promise, and since we are surrounded by all of these people who gave everything they had to see what we've seen, he says, let us also lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He said, when you understand and recognize the hour that you're in, that we, the New Testament church, are the thing that Abraham was looking for. We're the thing that Joseph was looking for. We're the thing that, that Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and Ezekiel and all these prophets were looking for. We are that. And because we are that, he says, we've got to lay aside the weights and the sins which doth so easily beset us. Listen, looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How, how do we refresh our faith, renew our strength, restore our hope, and redeem our righteousness? How do we do that? As we look to the author and the finisher. The author refers to him as the one who was the originator of our faith. He's the one who did it all. 
all the way back to Genesis. But he's not just the author. Many of us, even Israel was looking to the author at that point. But they weren't looking to the finisher of their faith. He is the author and finisher. The founder and the perfecter. And so here's what we do is we recognize the hour that we live in. And we stop getting distracted by the world around us. And we turn our eyes to this same Jesus that they sang about so powerfully tonight. We keep our eyes on Him. And when the world says our faith is out of fashion, we just look again. When distraction and trouble comes, we just look again. We just keep our eyes upon Him. We press towards the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Listen, when Peter was walking on water, he was doing the miraculous, but he started to sink the moment that he took his eyes off of Jesus. And listen, this world will swallow us up if we get so distracted that we forget that there is a coming judgment and that there is a returning Savior that is coming to redeem and to restore. We are that generation that was distracted. We are that generation that was compromised. We are all of those things. But, but here's how we get fresh faith in 2020 is when all is said and done, we turn our eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His glorious face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and His grace. Let's stand together and pray right now. Ushers, would you come while we're praying? Lord, I pray for this church tonight. I pray for our hearts and our minds in the beginning of this year. Lord, we've given you January. God, we had a week of consecration and communion, God. We had 21 days of prayer. And through this series, we've tried to restore and renew and refresh our faith by addressing all of the issues in our heart, God. And I pray right now, Lord, that you would give us a fresh focus. God, a fresh awareness of where we sit and where we're poised in time, God. Give us a fresh urgency for reaching the lost, God. Give us a fresh urgency for praying heaven's will down to earth, God. Give us a fresh new passion, God, for the things of God. And help us to walk through 2020 with a brighter fire burning within us, God. In the name of Jesus, I pray it and claim it. And if you believe it, would you just lift your hands and worship God for a moment? Jesus, we thank you and we praise you tonight. God, we give you glory. We receive your word and we're going to walk in it in Jesus' name.